Please turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 16, reading verses 48 through 50. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. Neither, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Amen. Father, we know that your judgments are good. We know that your grace is lovely. And we pray that rather than judgment, that our nation might see grace and yet, we want to come into agreement with your word that the sins that are listed in this passage are sins which we uh, uh, agree are great iniquity, a great raising of the fist against you. And we pray that you would uh, put them under the blood of Christ, that you would uh, take them away from our nation, and that you would be pleased to cause your grace and your truth to triumph. We love you, and we pray that we ourselves may grow and not only in our understanding of your word, but our love of it and our living out of it as we hear it this morning. Receive our worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, this past Friday, uh, we celebrated our nation's birthday, both in Lincoln and in Omaha. It was kind of a long day. But one of the things I really loved about the Lincoln celebration was this long string of youth who were reciting the entire Declaration of Independence. Uh, they had memorized it, and each one was taking his turn on another little portion. And I dare say that was probably the first time many in that group had ever heard the Declaration of Independence uh, being read like that, probably even heard the Declaration of Independence at all being read. But um, I was praying that some of these people would be uh, woken up by the Lord as they heard those words because some of the things that our founding fathers considered to be absolutely outrageous are things that are routinely happening in America today. And it struck me that the things that we used to be outraged against, we now are quite comfortable with. And this can happen with any sin when we become overly exposed to that sin. What we used to be outraged to, we no longer are. And uh, I found this uh, uh, something remarkable in a book that I read several years ago. And that book made me physically ill for several days after having read that. It, it, just the thought of it made me feel weak, made me feel awful. And I had to read it, but it was a um, book that was written by a Christian that was outlining some of the practices that homosexuals in our nation have engaged in based on polls that were taken of these, uh, these people. And when I was reading that book, I thought, you know, if only Americans could know what homosexuals are really like, what they engage in, there's no way they could have the influence that they are having. But since then, I've realized that's not really true because our nation and any people can become used to any sin. In fact, uh, I have seen Christians who used to consider one kind of practice to be revolting 30 years later in their lives, actually embracing the very abomination that they used to despise. There's one policeman in particular that 
was this way. Uh, he used to go out of his way, making life miserable for homosexuals, which was not a good thing. But he despised them. He did not like what they engaged in. But he himself was engaging in pornography and other heterosexual sin. And he found himself going down, down, down until finally he was engaged in the full homosexual lifestyle. He was embracing what he used to despise. And that can happen to anybody. And God says that the roots of Sodom are an abomination to him, not because they lead to homosexuality, but because they are an offense to God in their own right. Now, before we look at this passage, I want you to turn with me to Romans, and we're going to give you a little bit of background. I want to make three points from Romans chapters 1 and 2 that I think can help to understand what's going on in Ezekiel chapter 16. The first point is that when sin is not checked, it becomes increasingly sinful. It becomes worse and worse. It goes in a downward spiral. And homosexuality, it lists here, as being the final stage of being given up by God. Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through the beginning of verse 24. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up is what it says there. There was a downward slide that came because the earlier sins were not checked. The second point that I want to make is that most of the sins that are of these homosexuals that he's describing here that are condemned are not sexual sins. Uh, look at verses 29 through 32. It says, "...being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness." They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And then it goes on to talk about the judgment uh, that comes against them, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those uh, who practice them. And so he's condemning the root of sodomy as well as the fruit of sodomy, but it's not, we can't just single out one sin. They're all connected. The third thing that I want to point out is that Paul deliberately paints a picture of these homosexuals in such a way that the covenant community itself will not be able to escape from his application in chapter 2. See, he makes a difference in chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, he's talking about the world out there, and he uses the pronouns he and they. But in chapter 2, he's talking about the people within the church. He uses you, whether it's singular or plural. 
And so in chapter 2, he begins saying, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. And many of them would have been quick to judge the people in chapter 1, you know, pointing their fingers at them and saying, Oh, yeah, that's horrible what they're engaged in. But what Paul does is he says, Now, wait a minute. Let's not just look out there. Let's look at you yourself. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But what we know, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, the Jews uh, in that congregation prided themselves that they had not engaged in the gross outward uh, sins, you know, that chapter 1 is talking about. And yet Paul points out that the roots of Sodom were in their midst right then and there. And that's exactly what Ezekiel 16 is doing. So let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 16. And we're going to see that Sodom's fate was sealed not because they had become a homosexual city. It was sealed when they engaged in sins, of four sins, pride, gluttony, laziness, and lack of, con, uh, of compassion. Who would have thunk? I definitely would not have thought that. I think that's exactly what it's saying here. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 again. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And those sins were the slippery slope that eventually led to the abomination in verse 50, where he says, And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Now, I don't know if that puts the fear of God into you, but it definitely puts the fear of God into me because these are respectable sins. These are sins nobody really worries about that much, right? Uh, and even when the abomination is mentioned in verse 50, what's mentioned first? Pride. You know, haughtiness. It's once again the first thing that he mentions. And over the last two millennia, the church of Jesus Christ has described uh, these four sins. These are four of the seven deadly sins. And uh, they're called deadly because they destroy us. And yet every one of these seven deadly sins are respectable sins in America. They're not sins that people really worry about or are troubled about very much. Let me list them for you. Seven deadly sins. Pride. Envy, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, and sloth. Sloth is a synonym for laziness. And pride is at the top of the list. Pride was the first sin of Satan, and out of it has flowed every other sin. Steve Gallagher, the founder of Pure Life Ministries, which has been very, very successful in helping homosexuals to get out of their lifestyle and other sexual addicts, he said this, the one thing that all sexual addicts have in common is lack of self-control. The other root of sexual sin is pride. And you guessed it. Later in the book, he isolates the other two sins that are mentioned here in Ezekiel 16 as being at the root, feeding this problem of uh, sexual addiction. Those four things eventually led Sodom into their abomination. So let's deal with the first sin, pride. I was talking with a counseling pastor of another a church, and he said, pride is at the root of every other sin. And I think he is right. I think he is right. 
Uh, there are many Christians who detest sodomy, and rightly so, but uh, they need to realize that the Scripture says God detests pride. In other places, we read one earlier in the service, it's an abomination to the Lord. Pride is an abomination. Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Not just unbelievers who are proud. He detests all the proud of heart. Now, you might think, okay, I'm a Christian. God would not detest me. He's always close to believers. Uh, and uh, it's true, we are saved by the Lord, but Scripture indicates that pride alienates God from us. Even though we are His children, it alienates, it distances Him from us. Let me read you a Scripture, Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, yet He regards the lowly, but the proud He knows from afar. Now, the word for knows there in the Hebrew is yada, which means um, an intimate kind of a knowledge. It's the word that's used, for example, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's a, it's a love. Some people even translate it as love. And so it's not denying here that God loves believers. Yes, he does, but there's pain involved in that love because there's estrangement. He loves them from afar. Uh, why don't you turn with me to James chapter 4. This is a passage that addresses these four uh, same sins that Ezekiel addresses. And uh, indicates their presence within the church. James 4 and verses 1 through 6. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covenant cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And He goes on, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you, etc. But uh, this connection of pride, uh, if, we do not, if we have pride, God resists us, it says. And so David says God loves us from afar. There's estrangement. Uh, James says God actually resists us when we have pride. Now, if God resists the proud like that, and he's kind of estranged from them, it's no wonder then that Christians can fall into every imaginable kind of sin uh, that they wouldn't have even dreamed of, including sodomy, when they do not deal with their pride. And in the last four years, two very high-profile pastors and a number of other uh, not-so-high-profile pastors have fallen into the sin of sodomy. Why? Why would there be a connection? In his own victory with homosexuality, and in helping numerous sexual addicts through Pure Life Ministries, Steve Gallagher says that pride is at the heart of addiction and it's at the heart of relapses. He says the other root of sexual sin is pride. It seems that the more pride a person has, the more difficult overcoming sexual sin becomes. Pride is nothing more than being filled with self and a sense of one's own importance. This attitude, too, must be seriously dealt with if a person will hope to overcome self and the sexual sin that is the result of it. 
Now, there are other reasons why pride is at the beginning of this slippery slope, this spiral down uh, into sin. One is that pride is self-protective. It's difficult for a prideful person to be vulnerable before others. Isn't that exactly the way it works? You know, a person's uh, caught in, or engaged in, in, in pornography and he hates the fact that he's doing this. But boy, he didn't want to admit it to his wife. He didn't want to admit it to anybody else, certainly not to the pastor. Uh, pride does not want to have anybody recognize we are in trouble on this issue. And so what it's doing is it's depriving itself of you of help. If you're a wife who abuses your husband, you don't want to seek help and prayer because you're ashamed of what you're doing. Pride is defensive, very easily offended. What's the result? It insulates us from the very people who could be a help to us. So his well-crafted facade of spirituality keeps himself from being discipled by others, being prayed for by others, being loved by others. It keeps us from help. So we've seen, number one, pride alienates us from God. It makes God actually fight against us. Number two, it opens the door to many other sins. Number three, it insulates us from other Christians, but there's other ways in which it does damage. Let me read Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 9. He who reproves a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blemish. Let me just stop there for a sec. Uh, the prideful person, when you confront him, he'll immediately turn the tables on you and he will go on the attack. Uh, he, he is so uh, skilled at avoiding guilt and avoiding exposure, he will go on the attack. He will turn it against you, uh, make you look bad if you rebuke him. So Solomon says in verse 8, do not rebuke, or excuse me, do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, he will be still wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. And so a fourth problem with pride is that if you have it, it is unlikely anybody else is going to be able to help you. They won't be able to help you. In fact, God says, don't even bother trying to help that person. Leave them in their sin because they're just going to turn around and bite and devour you. So vulnerable people who are willing to receive correction, they're the ones who grow and grow and grow, whereas those who have pride, they save face, they cannot escape from their foolish ways. So here's the question. Are you unapproachable because of your pride? Uh, are you more concerned about your pride or are you more concerned about Christ's favor in your life? Usually our fears of being humiliated are way overblown, but even if we were to get humiliated, what's the big deal? It's good for us to have our pride crucified. The more times that happens, the better. Thomas Akempis said, It is good that we be sometimes contradicted and that there be a lessening conceit had of us. And this, although we do and intend well, these things help often to the attaining of humility. So if we want to flee from the sins of Sodom, we must be willing to be open and vulnerable to one another. Now, there are some of you in this congregation have not sinned in the last nine years that I've known you. At least it appears that way. Um, in the previous congregation that I was in, there was four separate people who had come to the church and left, and I talked with them. I was wondering where they were at, and they said, you know what? Your congregation, we're just amazed, is so perfect, so put together, and I know my life is so messed up, I'm not going to fit in here. And I laughed, and I said, 
you know, some people are just much more adept at hiding their sins than others, but we're all sinners growing in grace. And uh, we cannot be looking at it this way. And so think of that. If you have never told another soul about your sinfulness, is it because pride is keeping you from true body life, from letting other people minister to you? James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He's indicating this should be just a regular part of Christianity. It should not be a big deal. We should be so secure in God's grace in the fact that we are headed toward heaven that letting other people know about our sins does not trouble us. In fact, we can tell them, oh boy, if you only knew the half of the sins that I had. Yes, I have that sin, but I've got other sins you can pray for me on. Here's a few that I would like you to pray for me on and hold me accountable on. And yet many people do not see it. And pride is one of the reasons because pride makes us absolutely blind to our other sins. It not only insulates other people from our sins, it insulates our own mind. We try not to think about where we are at. And so we need to ask the Lord, Lord, reveal pride in my heart. I do not want pride to be there. We tend to be blind to even the existence of pride. One person said pride is like bad breath. Often, you are the only person who doesn't know you have it, you know? Another problem with pride is that uh, pride disguises itself in so many ways, sometimes masquerading as spirituality. There was a lady who came into the pastor's office, and she said to him, Pastor, I need to confess uh, my pride to you. And he said, Okay, what is it? And she said, well, I confess that I can't resist the temptation to look at myself for long periods of time in the mirror admiring my beauty. And he kind of looked at her and said, lady, your problem is not the sin of pride. It's the sin of imagination. (laughs) Well, you can imagine her hurt feelings because she had boatloads of pride in her life. And the reason she was coming was not to confess her pride. It was to have him affirm her beauty. And when he did the opposite and said that she really wasn't beautiful, her real pride came to the surface. But pride is so clever. It is such an awful and subtle adversary. It's also very hard to kill. C.H. Spurgeon once said, Pride is so natural to fallen man that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a watered garden or rushes by a flowing broom. It is an all-pervading sin and smothers all things like dust in the roads or flour in the mill. Its every touch is evil. You may hunt down this fox and think you have destroyed it. And lo, your very exaltation is pride. None have more pride than those who dream that they have none. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It seems impossible to kill it. Another form of pride is being a know-it-all where we think, uh, I don't need to be instructed by anybody else. Uh, uh, I don't need help in dealing with my problems. I can do it myself. Uh, But it's uh, being a know-it-all. Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, here's what John Calvin commented on this verse. He says, here he puts his finger upon the true sore as the whole mischief originated in this, that they were wise in their own conceit. See, they wouldn't have even fallen into all of these other sins if they had been willing to consider themselves fools in need of advice, in need of help from the body of Jesus Christ, but their pride kept them from that, which meant that they entered into those sins and were uh, themselves uh, uh, taken hold of. Another form of pride is unsubmissive pride. 
It is not an accident that the, the uh, era of, of uh, the 1960s, you know, there was so much rebellion going on there in the name of flower power and love and all of that, that that rebellion led into so much promiscuity, so many different kinds of sins. No accident at all because God has given authority structures for our sanctification. And when people are unwilling to come for biblical counsel of the elders, they leave themselves open to attack. Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now, it's hard for elders to watch over souls because we know we're going to be accountable to God. We're going to be judged by God for how we do that in your lives. But it's hard for you to be in submission because pride resists that. So if you recognize it in your head, okay, the reason I'm having a hard time coming into submission to the elders is because of my pride. Lord, crucify this pride. It will help. But just recognize that's another manifestation many times of pride. It takes grace to be gladly accountable. Another kind of pride is spiritual pride. It's the person who acts like a spiritual giant. Uh, He really doesn't recognize his sin. Christ got on the case of the Pharisees, not because of all their sins. He got on the case of the Pharisees because they did not recognize their sins. They did not acknowledge their sins. And I think one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount was to demonstrate that, that the Pharisees really were... Uh, unable to do the things God had called them to do. It manifested the sinfulness of their hearts that they hadn't even gotten to first base yet. See, they clearly saw sin in others. They clearly saw the pride in others, but they could not recognize it in themselves. C.S. Lewis said, the more pride one has, the more one dislikes the pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, How much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is competitive by nature. And I think the first phrase there, though, is really important. The more pride one has, the more one dislikes the pride in others. And so the fact that you may hate pride You're on a crusade against pride. You despise the pride in others. Maybe no indication that there is humility in you. It may be because there is so much pride within yourself. As I've already said, pride was the first sin of Lucifer and it flowed into every imaginable kind of abomination. And we will never have success in ministry, success in sanctification, overcoming our besetting sins until we start fighting against this monster this monster of pride. The Puritan William Gurnall said that pride will make us worthless in ministry. Pride was the sin that turned Satan, a blessed angel, into a cursed devil. Satan knows better than anyone the damning power of pride. Is it any wonder then that he so often uses it to poison the saints? His design is made easier in that man's heart shows a natural fondness for it. Pride like liquor is intoxicating. A swallow or two usually leaves a man worthless to God. Martin Luther agreed. He said, God created the world out of nothing, and so long as we are nothing, He can make something out of us. 
Luther had no room for the self-esteem movement, which is basically feeding, feeding pride until it grows into a huge monster. No, he said, God can do nothing in our lives. Actually, he didn't say it that way. He said, so long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. And so there must be more humbling of ourselves before God and man. And part of the way that we do that is by God working in us to do that humbling. It's grace that produces uh, the repentance needed to receive more grace. Andrew Murray said, This is the true self-denial to which our Savior calls us, the acknowledgement that self has nothing good in it except as an empty vessel which God must fill. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. Now, if we come to God that way, He will lift us up. He lifts up the humble, okay? And we'll have all of the strength that we need to overcome our sins. You can see why this issue of pride and humility, it's a crucial, crucial step in our sanctification. Andrew Murray again. Brethren, here is the path to the higher life. Down, lower, down. Seek not, ask not for exaltation. That is God's work. See to it that you abase and humble yourselves and take no place before God or man but that of a servant. That is your work. And let that also be your one purpose in prayer. God is faithful. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, His glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. Now, I've spent most of the sermon on that issue of pride because all of the other sins really flow out of that. But let's move on to the next point, gluttony. Ezekiel calls it fullness of bread. One translation has overfed. Another has gluttony. But verse 49 calls this a sin. Ezekiel says this too was at the root of their eventual abomination. Why does he say that? Well, it's because lack of self-control in gluttony is no different than lack of self-control in drink or in sex or drugs or TV or the credit card. In fact, invariably, when you have lack of self-control in one area of your life, it's going to bleed over into many other areas of your life. And this is why Alcoholics Anonymous is really so ungodly and disastrous. It gives the illusion of righteousness, but it's never conquered the sin. And that's why they say, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. We are not recovered. You know, we, we, we're uh, sober drunkards is what they say. And yet all drunkards are going to hell. And so we've got many people who are sober drunkards headed for hell because they've got an illusion. It's a, it's a counterfeit of grace. Grace transforms. Grace changes. Grace says, such were some of you, but now you are washed. You're sanctified. And so we need to be very careful how we look at this, this issue. What happens when they are just avoiding the alcohol, never dealing with the issue, is the same root principle manifests itself in addiction to tobacco or addiction to uh, sex or TV or purchasing, whatever it may be. It just transfers. Steve Gallagher, the founder of Pure Life Ministries, as I've mentioned, has ministered successfully to the asexual addicted for many, many years. And unlike many counseling methods, psychological in origin, that never are able to fully help homosexuals out of their lifestyle, he has been profoundly successful in his methodology. And the Lord has used that ministry to help not just homosexuals, but many people in sexual addiction. 
And he says the whole spiritual life has to be addressed in order to conquer those addictions. Gluttony is one of the issues that always has to go. Now, you don't have to be overweight to be a glutton. And some people who are overweight aren't gluttons. Okay? He was very thin. But he said that even after he had, uh, had, had victory over his sexual sins for quite some period of time, when he would begin to pig out on sweets, he said he could eat sweets in moderation, no problem. When he began to pig out on sweets, he would find his old passions beginning to arouse in other areas of his life. And so fullness of food has a direct bearing on keeping oneself pure. Now, it's just not fullness of food. Any lack of self-control in one area will bleed over into another area. And so Gallagher says in another place, the one thing that all sexual addicts have in common is lack of self-control. I have found that most people who are addicted to one thing have other areas of their lives out of control. Overeating, very common among sexual addicts. Others run up credit cards with complete disregard to the inevitable consequences. Still others overindulge in sports entertainment, any number of other pursuits. It is very common for a person to have more than one area out of control because the underlying problem isn't sexual addiction but a self-centered lack of control, restraint, and discipline. One of the keys to overcoming an addiction is to learn restraint in every area of life, not just the area of addiction. So he has his counselees, all of them engage in fasting. doesn't matter what their health condition is. Fasting is a discipline that has to be in place. And what fasting is doing is it's deliberately and in controlled environment putting your body into a position where it's saying, help me, give to me, please feed me. And you are systematically saying, no, submit. You're, my body is going to be under the control of my spirit, not vice versa. And you control and you begin to train your body and your spirit to respond as they need to uh, as they need to uh, be under control. <clears throat> Read Isaiah 58, 6 through 12 sometime, and you'll see there is a powerful connection between fasting and being able to overcome these forces. In fact, why don't we go ahead and read it right now? Let's see, Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 12. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and He will say, Here I am. And actually He had started His discussion of fasting a few verses earlier. And you can uh, read those for yourself sometime. But let's go on to the third sin. Zeal versus uh, the... Uh, sin of laziness. Ezekiel 16 says that the iniquity of Sodom was abundance of idleness. Now I want you to notice he doesn't say idleness is a sin. After all, you're commanded to sleep and sleep is idleness. <laughs> yeah, so it's not idleness, it's abundance of idleness. And those of you who are pleasure seekers, 
Those of you who spend hours after hour every day in front of the television set, those of you who read romance novels hour after hour, day after day, you need to realize what he's talking about, what, what you're experiencing, that is sin. And it's not just any sin, it's the most heinous sin, what he speaks of is the iniquity of Sodom. How many productive hours have been wasted in front of the television set? How many productive hours have been wasted reading, you know, fiction? Now, I think it's okay to read fiction. I think it's okay to watch videos in moderation. And <coughs> we, We've talked about that in the past. God delights to bless His people. But I cannot imagine that the amount of hours that Americans spend in front of the television set can in any way be justified with the biblical principle of entertainment. Uh, we live in a pleasure-oriented society, not a work ethic society, and it is no wonder to me that the sins of Sodom have become to be, begun to become much more prevalent in our society. It was idleness, a failure to be on the battlefield that set uh, David up and made him succumb to the sin with Bathsheba. That was preceded that. You look at some of the other sins in the Old Testament, you'll see idleness is frequently connected. Christ did call His disciples to rest. He called them to vacations. I preached on that last week. I'm not against that. God delights to delight His people, but it needs to be planned idleness and not an overabundance of idleness. <coughs> Preoccupation with an abundance of idleness arouses the desires of the flesh. Why don't you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, <coughs> where again we have these four sins that are grouped together. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 5. Now in verses 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4, uh, we find lack of compassion that is being addressed. In verses 5 through 7, we have various forms of pride that are being addressed. In verse 2, we've got greed, lack of self-control address. But I want you to look at the, the, the call to zeal in verses 8 through 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Notice the phrase, be vigilant. Here's how Webster's defines the opposite of vigilance, which is passivity. Not active, but acted upon. Affected by outside force or agency. Receiving or enduring without resistance or emotional reaction. And I think this is what has happened in large part to the church in America has become so enslaved to comfort that we have become spiritually lethargic. Rather than aggressively going after the strongholds of Satan, we've allowed them to overcome us with the least bit of resistance. Uh, rather than affecting our culture, we've allowed the culture to affect us. Rather than getting involved in politics, what do we do? We just wipe that out. We, 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 we don't want to have to do with it. Second Timothy 2, 3-4 calls us to hardship as a soldier. How many of you have experienced hardship of a soldier? Now, if you've been in the military, you have. <laughs> and it can be tough. But in the spiritual realm, he's calling us to practice the hardship of a soldier. 
We admire the Christians in India who have done this. You know, they go out witnessing, uh, preaching, and they keep doing it despite the fact they've been stoned a number of times, been beaten, and in other ways been persecuted. But we ourselves cannot find it within our hearts to deprive ourselves of comfort like they have. How many times have I heard the phrase, I don't feel like it? Well, our feelings really are irrelevant as God has commanded us to do something. We need to ask, what does God desire of me? What has God commanded us? Many Christians have a snooze alarm for every area of their lives and they wonder why they keep falling asleep in those areas. It's because they keep hitting the snooze button. Counselors of sexual addicts discover time after time when there has been a relapse uh, into sin and they, they question them. Now, what's going on? There shouldn't have been a relapse here. You've been going straight for eight months, for a year. What is, what's going on? They analyze time after time. They have found that it's one of these four sins, but frequently it's just been these guys have been lazy for a while. It may be vegging out in front of the television, you know, for several days in a row. It may be uh, starting to get into uh, a habit of reading more time than they should be uh, spending on fiction or something along those lines. But it's almost an axiom with them that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Steve Gallagher has all the people that he works with very heavily involved in Christian service. And he says, really, it accomplishes three things. First of all, it keeps them too busy to have their minds enticed by other things. Secondly, it takes their eyes off of themselves and their own selfish concerns and beginning to selflessly minister to others. And then thirdly, their ministry provides additive incentive to try harder. But whether you've already engaged in the sexual license of Sodom or whether that's the furthest thing from your mind. You need to take this issue of laziness very seriously. <clears throat> laziness must be licked. Abundance of idleness must be put away if we're to please God. Now, the last issue is lack of compassion. Verse 49 again. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of bread, excuse me, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Now, I want you to notice this was a sin of omission. It's not anything they did. It was a failure to do something. Okay, but God says this inaction when there was a need for compassion will eventually lead a society to abomination. What has happened in America? Well, Intercessors for America asked the rhetorical question, can an administration refuse to ban late-term abortion, allow militant sodomites and lesbians into high offices, engage with 15,000 voodoo priests in Haiti, compromise the gospel of Christ, practice and preach New Age syncretism, call for the toleration of Islam, and stubbornly refuse to stand and work against the persecution and martyrdom of Christians around the world and be so spiritually naive as not to think that death will enter its own camp? You know, no culture probably in the world has had more of a reputation of compassion than America and yet still been devoid of it. You know, we give money all, all over the place. But more babies have been slaughtered in America than have been slaughtered in all of the wars that America has engaged in. We have systematically ignored the pleas of human rights violations against Christians in China, Tibet, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Egypt, numerous other countries, and yet we've gone against, uh, to war against Iraq for human rights violations, which were there, 
but far less in Iraq than most any other Islamic country. It, there's something strange that's going on there. But anyway, government handouts is not personal compassion. One commentator said the final sin of Sodom was that they did not strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They became callous, uncaring, and indifferent to the needs of people around them because they were so absorbed in themselves. They were no longer concerned with the needs of others. This led to a bravado, a freedom to express and manifest openly their impure and perverted desires. Whenever a society is so weak that those who are perverted in their nature feel a bravery to expose themselves publicly, to make public demands and become aggressive, then you have a society that is ready for the judgment of God. And so we need to pray that the church in America will turn from its pride, its self-indulgence, its laziness, and its lack of compassion. See, July 4 celebrates the exact opposite virtues. In uh, early America, our country showed humility when they cried out to God and showed their total dependence upon God. In fact, I'm convinced that the radical humbling of American citizens through the, uh, uh, the, the, the First Great Awakening prepared America in large part uh, for that great war. Second, instead of self-indulgence, we see the founders pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And many of them lost all of those things, but they considered it worthwhile for protecting the liberties of their children. They were self-sacrificing instead of self-indulgent. Instead of laziness, we see an amazing Protestant work ethic among our founding fathers. Uh, they, they abominated laziness. Instead of lack of compassion, we see a sacrificial care for the poor. And again, America's got such a reputation for compassion because we send billions of dollars to the rulers of poor countries, and very little of it trickles down to the common man, but we got a reputation of compassion. But in colonial America, that was a virtue that was expected of every citizen. They cared for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, but they did it with real compassion, not with government funds. In fact, I think they would have been outraged with the thought that socialism with compassion, uh, they would say that actually robs a country of compassion because everybody begins to think, well, the government will take care of it. We're compassionate. And yet they've not showed any personal compassion themselves. And so we have lost those four virtues in America. Instead, we have become characterized with the roots of Sodom. And it is no surprise to me that sodomy and every other sexual abomination is flourishing in this nation. But I think in large part, we've got the church to blame. It was precisely because Lot was not acting as salt and light in Sodom that judgment was not averted. Okay? He was not acting as salt and light. God said if there were even ten righteous people, men in this city, which is basically bottom line for a church, that he would not bring judgment there. Judgment begins at the house of God. We need to pray that God would purge these sins from our own hearts, from the presence of the local congregation, from the bride of Jesus Christ as a whole. We cannot have an effective witness against our perverted culture unless the church repents of the roots of Sodom. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do repent since we are covenantally connected, and not only with America as a nation, but with the church of Jesus Christ, we repent of these sins that are in our lives. And I pray that you would not be estranged any longer from the church of Jesus Christ, that you would not be estranged from our lives personally, but that you would manifest your love, your glory, 
the richness of Your grace. We need more grace, Father. And we pray that You would pour that out upon the church of Jesus Christ and through her there would be reformation in our society. We love You. We bless You. We want to grow in our love to You. We want to grow in our ability to bless You and serve You. And so to this end, we ask for more grace. In Christ's name, Amen.